0: Welcome back to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Katz, the host for this episode. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Dr. Vicki Brennan about her book, Singing Yoruba Christianity, Music, Media, and Morality, which was published by Indiana University Press in 2018. Dr. Brennan is an associate professor of religion at the University of Vermont. Dr. Brennan, welcome to New
1: Books. Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So I know you have a background in ethnomusicology as well as anthropology. um, So it certainly makes sense that you would land on a topic related to music. Uh, But how did you become interested in Nigeria? And then sort of how did you narrow down your interest in terms of church music?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. I, um, I have to say that my interest in Nigeria and in this topic is entirely due to sort of personal relationships um, and contacts. So when I started my master's degree in ethnomusicology, um, I actually, as part of the program of study, we had to learn a music tradition that was not an American music tradition or a Western music tradition. And so the Nigerian musician Ik Daro, he's a pop musician who most Nigerians will know who he is. Um, he's a super famous Nigerian juju musician. He was in residence at the University of Washington um, my first year as a graduate student you know, fresh out of college. So I had the great fortune, the amazing opportunity to study with him that first year of graduate um, work. So Ike Dairo was... Um, you know, both uh, this kind of musical inspiration for me, I, for, it was, you know, I had, I learned about Nigerian music through that contact, but he was also a leader in the Cherubom and Seraphim churches in Nigeria. And so that was sort of how I stumbled onto this project. Um, it was, you know, both through my regular contact with him and also Chris Waterman, who was teaching at the University of Washington at that time, who was of course responsible for bringing I.K. Dairo to the U.S. to teach you know, students, how to play juju music. Um, he was like, Vicky, you know, this would be a great project. You should think about it. So so it's through that kind of connection. And it was always like, I'm going to go to Nigeria so I can study in Babat's church. Um, and unfortunately, he passed away before I was even able to go to Nigeria for the first time. But I have visited his church in the Luwansen area of Nigeria, of Lagos, multiple times. And um, yeah, so it really comes out of that very personal close connection I had during my first year of graduate studies.
0: Yeah, that's lucky. Um, so I was hoping you might uh, share a bit more about your research methods. Um, and if you could kind of comment on, you know, whether your methods changed um, over the course of working on the project.
1: Um, yes. Yeah. That You, you, my guest has also entered the chat. So I'll just note the cat. <laughs> um, yeah. So I am an, I am a trained as an anthropologist and an ethnomusicologist, which means I primarily use ethnographic methods, um, my in- intention, I mean, this follows, this is how most ethnomusicologists, particularly when I was trained, um, uh, approach their study was to you know, sort of embed yourself within a musical community and learn how to play the music, how to to perform the music in some way. So, I um, I was able to um, to join the choir of the Ionio Church in Lagos, which is, I mean, there's a story there which I won't go into. I, I had to go through a lengthy process though to be able to um, be invited to join the choir without having done their whole. Um, uh, baptismal classes and all that kind of stuff, but they were really um, generous in inviting me to join the choir. So part of what I did during my um, two years of field research with the church Uh, in Lagos was to sing with the choir. I went to choir practice twice a week um, to to, uh, the regular worship services on Sunday. I had to attend Bible study classes and other functions. Um, I took talking drum lessons with the church's uh, lead drummer um, just to have a little bit of an understanding of of how the talking drum works within the musical practices of the choir. And then I also did, uh, um, well, I had visited a great deal. I had spent six months uh, doing research prior to joining the choir. So I visited other churches. So I had a comparative basis for the study. (laughs) Yes, sorry about the little distraction there. Um, But then um, I did in-depth interviews with a number of the, the elders in the church. And then I also tried to identify, um, folks, uh, sort of regular everyday sort of church members that would be worth doing um, life histories or case studies on. So I did a variety of those kinds of, you know, it's like participant observation, learning how to perform the music, um, interviews, I surveyed the choir, I didn't survey the church, because it's qu- it's a quite large church, um, but I did do a survey of the choir about their musical um preferences and practices. Um, and so it's a it's a, a sort of mix of all of those things. Um, in terms of how did it change, I think I think one thing I will say is that um, I did want to do some archival research in um, Nigeria and the times when I was there at the, for at the particular for this particular research um, so it was the early 2000s um, it was very difficult for me to gain access to archives um, during those two years I would say the universities in Lagos most the the, the lectures were on strike pretty much the entire time um, libraries weren't really open though I did I were I was able to use um, some of the UI University of Ibadan Library Archives. Um, so the archival side of it isn't wasn't quite as full as I intended, and then perhaps it's that's okay though because it's you know the the project went in a different direction.
0: Also too, uh, you at some points mentioned sharing your research and even your whole dissertation uh, with members of the church. Uh, So I was wondering kind of what were the moments in which you kind of sought out uh, feedback directly for what you had been written and kind of how did that change kind of the direction or?
1: Yeah, well, that's actually what's always was so, that was so interesting to me because it was really important for me to have feedback. I didn't want it to just be a sort of drop in, do a study and then write a book kind of thing. But I really wanted to have it be this engaged, um, you know, dialogic anthropology, anthropol you know ethnography. I'm sorry, dialogic ethnography, and um, so I did. I shared it with. I would share works or chapters in progress with um, a few key members of the choir, including the choir master, who is now actually the general leader of the church. That's the focus of the book. Um, so he he read. Um, well, I sent him drafts. He would give me more gen- general feedback on it. Um, there was one of the choir members uh, who now leads his own church in Lagos, but he read a lot of the chapters and he helped me with some of the Yoruba translations as well. Um, so he gave me feedback um, on the general direction of the text. The, current, the, the person who's the cor- current um, head master of the choir, who's actually based in New York City, um, he read. I sent him the entire um, manuscript, and he read it. And then, in within the Ionio Church, there's an English chapel, and one of the members of the English chapel is actually a professor of linguistics at Lagos State University, um, and so he actually read the text. As well, and gave me feedback on it. And what was interesting to me about the all of this feedback is that it was like, "Oh yes, you really like." It was very positive, very encouraging. And then it would usually end by telling me, "You're not criticizing us enough. Tell us what we're doing wrong." <laughs> Which was interesting to me. I think, um, you know, obviously, I don't see ethnography as deciding who's doing Christianity right or wrong. Um, but it was interesting to me as an ethnographic point in terms of what they were interested in, uh, in terms of their focus on their worship practices. And so I think that some of that does make it into the manuscript.
0: All right. So now let's get into uh, the book. Um, so to start, for our listeners who might not be kind of very familiar with this topic, can you provide just like a little background on the Shrubin and uh, Seraphim church?
1: Yeah. Um, so the Cherubim and Seraphim are a one of a number or of a group of churches that across the African continent um, are often referred to as African independent churches um, in Nigeria or in, in, especially in the Yoruba region of Nigeria, they're often referred to as Aladura churches. Um, and these are churches that um, broke off from mission churches in the early early, um, 1900s, like late 1800s, early 1900s, to develop to sort of develop into um, African Africanized forms of Christian practice. They understood themselves to be independent from the the sort of Catholic Church or the Anglican Church. Um, and what's distinct about the Aladura churches uh, and the Cherubim and Seraphim churches, in particular, that they're they're known in Southwest Nigeria for being white garment churches, they wear uh, white robes to worship in, um, they incorporated a lot of very dis- uh, sort of distinctive musical styles um, into their worship practices, with, hence my book. Um, and they also um, uh, sort of the the role of church prophets, uh, prophecy and, and prophets in the church is something that's often seen as distinctive about the Aladara churches. Um, and yeah, so the Cherubim and Seraphim church is one of uh, a handful of different Aladara churches. It's one of the, the sort of three main Aladara churches in Southwest Nigeria.
0: So you kind of begin by laying out how sort of the act of all sort of singing the same song together in church and you know singing it properly is central to the ability of the church to you know literally bring the Holy Spirit into the space um, of the church. So can you explain kind of how how that works?
1: Yeah. So what the the main argument or the the main purpose of the book is to show how church members um draw on a variety of media song dance uh, bodily comportment dressing the body um, etc uh, in order to uh recreate an idealized space of 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 heaven um that is it, that is a space within which um proper Moral forms of behavior can be enacted, um, and that becomes sanctified through the, the the presence of the Holy Spirit. So, if you 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 engage in all of these media correctly, you're transforming the self so that it's one that's more open to the presence of the Holy Spirit, um, and it's also one that's more likely for the Holy Spirit to to enter into. Yeah. Um, and so it is really through the kind of manipulation of all of these different kind of media forms, dressing the body in white, um, singing singing the, the particular kinds of songs in a certain sort of style according to the right kinds of performance practices, um, moving together, um, you know, the, the groupness of it, is, if it's about singing the same song, right, that imp- implies a kind of groupness of it, all of that is about achieving a, a certain kind of ideal self, community, um, and moral behavior. Um, and
0: then where do the kind of the different hymns come from, um, particularly those that were sort of produced by Nigerians throughout the, the church's history?
1: Yeah, so there's a, a number of different songs that are sung in the church. And some of them, uh, as you, you kind of, I think your question implies, is some of them are hymns that are taken from uh, Anglican churches, Western churches, um, a variety of different uh, Christian hymnals, um, but many of them are also composed in the church, the aladra or the Cherubim and Seraphim churches themselves by church members. So there's a there's there's hundreds, if not thousands, of them. It's a it's a large. Um, lengthy uh, compendium of songs. Um, so some of them are, there's some hymns that are distinctly identified as having been composed by the charismatic founder of the church back in the early 1900s, Moses Orimolade, um, and other of his fo- followers in that time during the, the, the founding moment of the church. Um, but throughout the 20th century um, songs, were composed. Some of them made their way into the cherubim and seraphim handbook, and I talk about that a bit in one of the chapters of the text. Um, But songs continue to be composed, and they'll incorporate different kinds of musical styles. Um, They're often usually based on uh, some sort of biblical inspiration, And frequently, composers receive songs through a sort of Holy Spirit um, inspiration. So um, often they come while people are asleep or in dreams and the Holy Spirit arrives. Um, And as part of the lesson that they're, you know, sort of they receive a message from God through this um, intervention. Um, And often the lesson ends up in... You know, they, they receive it in the form of a song that they can then teach to others. And I actually describe at length in the book, one of the chapters of the book, um, the uh, a sort of dream that the choir master had that resulted in a set of two songs that became the first commercial recording made by the Ionio Church in Lagos.
0: Yeah, I also found it interesting how it was really a kind of group effort to write a lot of these songs, even if one person has the dream, it's not necessarily that they're doing all of the the writing of the music, but...
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean the the what's interesting and this is actually I know we'll talk a little bit later about my 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 what I'm working on right now, but um so much of musical learning and professionalization of musicians in Southwest Nigeria, in perhaps southern Nigeria more generally, is happening in the church. So People are singing in church for their religious purposes, but they're also learning how to play music. And then that is coming out of the church. Right. So my discovery, or you know, my discovery of this research project through meeting I.K. Dairo um, is, is pointing to that, right? He's uh, this this popular music superstar who also learned how to play in the church. Um, he extends out of the church through his popular music, but he also brings it back into the church um, through his. Religious practice,
0: and then you know, as you discuss, you know, music is sort of not only central to the facilitation of prayer and religious experience, um, but it also kind of helps connect members to the history of the church, um, particularly in terms of the official hymnal. So, kind of, how how does music kind of reference back word to the past?
1: Yeah, so I think that's one of the um, the things that that church members see music as doing is that it is a way. If you sing the same song that your ancestors sang or that those who came before you sang, and you sing it in the right way, and the question of the right way. Is always one that's up for debate. Like that was that's sort of what I try to trace through the various discussions in the text. Um, but if you sing that in the right way, that then you're able to connect to that wisdom of your elders, of your of your ancestors, um, and bring it into the present so it can be used. Um, and in one of the chapters of the text, I do talk at length about a a particular ceremony performed in the church on um, Holy Michael's Day, which acknowledge, which is a celebration of the founding of the church um, by the, the original members of the church, um, in which they explicitly sing songs that are understood both to have been composed by the founders of the church, but also to have been inspirational of of the founding of the church, um, and so I talk about in that chapter how um, it's actually "Onward, Christian Soldiers" is one of the key hymns of that day that's sung, um, right? Which is a song. I mean, this is a way of expanding one's ancestral, uh, like who is one, who is one's ancestors, who is one's one's history, and then how does singing that in the present moment connect you to that past and allow you to bring those lessons forward?
0: One thing I I was wondering here was whether you observed kind of any generational differences in how members related to the past, or whether kind of the regular repetition of certain historically rooted songs sort of helped prevent those, you know, intergenerational tensions, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I think actually generation is a, a really important part of the book's argument that perhaps I don't do enough with um, in the writing because I think that's explicitly what's at stake in so many of the um, the debates about what is the right way to sing this song um, and what is the right song to sing in, in this particular moment. Um, and while I was doing my research my you know I did this sort of focus two years of very focused um ethnographic field research and then I would go back um uh, I mean I've (laughs) I've been visiting the the church uh pretty regularly for the past 20 years now which is sort of kind of blows my mind a little bit um but um or follow debates on social media and other media forums and it is about making sure that young people Understand the importance of the his of history and of proper forms of of behavior, both like bodily comportment as well as um, moral or ethical orientations towards society, towards the world. Um, but I think it was um, I think that the, you know mo- many of the. The, the controversies that arose were about like how to navigate a new generation who desires to be a leader in the church, for example. I mean, that was one of the big debates. Um, and part of what happened in the Ionio church. So this has been I mean, t- let me just take a step back and say this has some, been something that's characterized cherubim and seraphim churches from the very beginning. Um, If you look at the early um, studies of that particular church, um, there's a, a, you know, sort of sociological studies or historical studies written by Nigerian as well as by um, uh, British scholars. Um, It notes the that there's a lot of schisms, right? That the like the cherubim and seraphim Church is constantly breaking into new denominations or new um, new groups, um, and m- much of that has to do with generational difference and the desire for a certain kind of religious authority. Um, and the Ionio Church has tried has navigated that divide in various kinds of ways. When I was doing my research there, um, the big threat. Um, or what was perceived by church leaders as a big threat was the loss loss of younger people to neo-Pentecostal churches. Um, and so it was a debate about how to liven or transform worship practices to ensure that young people didn't leave for these, these other churches that appeared to be newer or modern um, or whatever. Um, and I'm not... I mean, I think that it's complicated in terms of whether it worked or not. I'm not, I don't think I'm the person to answer that. But I think what's interesting is the way that they really, they would develop new sort of fellowships within the church. And I will note that the the choir that I worked with was connected to what was called um, the main church in this particular, so this is a very large mega Mega church, not as big perhaps as Redeemed Church of God or some of the other big Nigerian mega churches, but it's a big church, especially by the Aladra standards, the white garment church standards. Um, and within the church compound, every Sunday, there'd be three or four different fellowships worshiping in separate spaces. And they were um, the two main, or the main division was based on age. So when I was doing the bulk of my research, um, 2002 to 2004, um, I did my work in the main church, which mainly um, uh, included church members older than 40, I would say. So I was actually too young at that time to really, they were like, well, you're kind of young, but but you should come sing with us. And then the youth fellowship were was for young, young adults, basically, people between the age of 20 and 40. Um, and then after I left, um, There was an even further fracturing uh, where, you know, as people aged out of the youth fellowship, they didn't feel like they belonged in the main church, even though they'd aged up there. So there was a middle um, uh, fellowship created. And I think that that's part of like those are the those are there's an acknowledgement that different generations want to worship differently and that circumstances, social circumstances, economic circumstances, political circumstances are different depending on when you're trying to make your life, to have your career and your family. And so there were different kinds of religious needs. Uh, The church fracturing into two churches, they just developed these fellowships within the church. Um, But I think that that's really the challenge, or that's that's sort of what I try to trace in the book, which is how do you maintain this connection to the past when the present is changing so rapidly um, to ensure a future that resembles the past. Um, so I think that that's, you know, that's part of what they're trying to use music to do. If you can sing the same song that the founder of the church sang, um, then you will have that connection, even if you're singing it in a very different kind of um, context than Moses or sang. He was singing in the colonial period, uh, the, the period of British colonialism. Um, now it's a, it's a very different moment.
0: Um, A topic that comes up at, you know, different moments of the book uh, is how media of recorded music has facilitated and changed many aspects of kind of the day-to-day functioning of the church, which you've kind of already alluded to a bit. Um, And it's also kind of crucial to its popularity. That's kind of how you ended up, you know, uh, studying this church in part. Um, So to start, you describe how the 1978 recording by the Aeonio Church um, branch was kind of key to its founding um, and justified itself both in terms of history uh, as well as the present context of Nigeria's oil boom. So, I mean, how does it manage to kind of accomplish all of that with sort of one cassette tape?
1: Well, I think, I mean, I'm not sure it accomplishes it just with the cassette tape, but I think sure. the cassette is this really interesting lens into which we can see how. Um, the church navigates these kinds of generational differences we've talked about and to maintain continuity with the past, but also change in relationship to uh, a transformed present. Um, and I think, you know, as I describe in the chapter, it really lines up with their sort of desire for, or, or their perceived understanding of the evangelical purpose of the church to reach new Christians, to reach Christians. um, um and also for their um, interest in uh, sort of creating this compelling music and sharing it with people. Um, and so I think that the cassette tape, I mean, I, I, they did initially record it. Um, I think it was initially pressed in vinyl but that was quickly you know that particular technology because of the transformations the external transformations of sound recording and distribution technology more generally became quickly became eclipsed by the cassette right it enabled these songs to move outside of the space of the church and this was this was recognized as something that was going to be good like you're even if it's people who aren't going to come to church, they're still going to hear the message. They're still going to be able to sing the same song. And then we will be able to recreate outside of the church, the, the sort of ideals of the moral community. Um, and so I think that's, I mean, the the ways that these different kinds of musical technologies enable wider circulation as well as transformation um, is really um is really worth noting and some of the the project I'm currently working on is actually expanding on that side of the argument a little bit more um but I I think well yeah let's we can stick to the,
0: yeah sure uh, and then later chapters um, in the book kind of come back to uh, To the sort of importance of recorded sound produced by the church. Um, So, what are some of the different ways that kind of ordinary church members as well as members of the choir incorporate uh, recorded hymns into their daily lives?
1: Yeah, well, I think that having a recording of a particular song really changes the way that you can think about what it means to sing the same song right um, we don't have a recording for example of Moses or molade singing a song that he the founder of the church was right singing a song um, in the style he would have sung it we have to recreate it through um, you know sort of repeated practice over time transmission across generations but when you have a recording you have an actual, instance of a performance of a song that then can set the standard for what it means to sing the same song and so what i you know one of one of the things that i observed was the challenges that that presented if you take a song that's recorded on one of the churches you know, commercial recordings on one of their cassettes and now their CDs. And I mean, I'm guessing now that they, they stream, (laughs) um, I mean, I know that they stream uh, and you have to re recreate it in a live worship performance. um, What does it mean then to sing the same song? Do you sing it exactly as it was on the recording? Um, Do you adapt it because you're singing it in a new, moment um, that has different uh, different challenges or different um, contexts. and how does how is that negotiated? And so part of what I try to, I mean, this is where I feel like you, you, we talked a bit about my methods earlier like this is really where um, the ethnography becomes very sort of, Uh, complicated. This is where ethnography becomes necessary to even understand it um, because it's about bringing together these different ideas of what it means. And so I do talk a little bit about um, how for members of the choir, especially when they're practicing the songs that are already well known um, by them, um, they have to learn how to sing it in a way that's both Recognizing, recognizes or acknowledges the past performance of the song, but also is speaking. To their current situation, and you know, I describe a, a case where the the director that day stops the the practice to say like, no, 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 you're not really singing it. You have to feel it, and once you feel it and you connect it to yourself, then you've sung the song. Like you can't just enjoy it um, because you know the song and you know how to sing it. And I think that that's the that's I for me that gets at the some of the work. Like to point to how religious orientations to the world are really about these repeated learned and practiced embodied, um, embodied practices.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And then sort of beyond, you know, listening to the recordings um, and practicing, how do other types of bodily discipline, as well as a sort of sartorial tradition and organization of the space within the church, how do these all kind of work along with the music to help members sort of feel the Holy Spirit during the church service?
1: <clears throat> yeah, I so the one of the key arguments of the book is that it is about all of, you know, it's this multimedia, um, highly sensationalized form that draws together, um, smell, sight, taste, touch, um, as well as sound in order to achieve these sorts of bodily ways of being in the world that uh, exemplify moral orientations towards each other. Um, and ways of being and so I you know it's it's I mean I think wearing the the white church uniform is a key part of that um again that it connects back to what we talked about in terms of generational differences certainly I think that um for many there's a there's a I think there's a debate about is this too old-fashioned what does it really mean um, as opposed to the, the the argument made by a number of members of the church of of a variety of ages that no no this once you put this this uniform on you are transformed you're no longer merely your your sort of everyday profane form quote unquote profane form but you become um, sacralized through it um, and I would often. Be told. I mean, I'll I'll have to admit. So I did wear the the white um the white church uniform. Uh, I mean, I had to in order to sing in the choir. Um, and but I was very. Uh, what I'm admitting is that it often made me uncomfortable to be out and about outside of the church in the the white uniform because it, it made me even more noticeable <laughs> than I already was on the streets. Um, I mean, I would be stopped, you know, to. I mean, people would stop and stare or people would just stop and say, what are you doing? What is this? What is going on? And so I would often try to just change before I left the church compound. And a lot of people did that. It's not like I was doing something out of the ordinary. But people would say, what are you doing? You have to keep your church uniform on. It's going to protect you. Like, this will provide the protection Um that, you know, that way you won't have any car accidents on your way home. You won't be stopped by the police. You won't, nothing will harm you. You'll get home safely. We insist you keep your uniform on. And I think that that is, you know, that points to the way that this is not just about putting on a dress, um, but it's about, cr- it's about transforming the self in line with um, these ideals of the church that also has this efficacious it does this efficacious work in the world, right? That it, that that's why how it performs that or, or it creates this protective shield, and so it's it, it's you know it, part of all of that the, the 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 uniform, knowing how to sing the songs, knowing how to sing them the right way, knowing how to move the body, recognizing the sound of of the. The, the right way to pray. Um, all of that comes together then allows one to be the right kind of person in the world to be able to claim one's blessings, right? To achieve prosperity, to, um, to uh, ensure a good future for your community.
0: In your epilogue, you note that kind of new media, um, from cell phones to Facebook, um, have presented new platforms for religious music. Uh, I particularly found the debate over whether uh, to put a hymn, out a hymn as a kind of musical callback feature on people's cell phones to be really interesting. So um, so can you talk a, a little bit about kind of how church elders sort of decide how to regulate the use of new media as it relates to church music?
1: Well I mean I think this is a this is an interesting um this is one of these interesting debates right that leads you that for me leads to a real understanding of how past and present get reconciled about how generational difference is both produced as well as um, overcome um and so, I mean, it's, in terms of an actual procedure, they have lots of meetings. <laughs> like that's the, actually, that's literally how it's done. And they will talk about it a lot. Um, I actually wasn't really privy to the meetings about the callbacks. Um, but I think it was about uh, sort of what does this technology mean? You know, similar to the way like deciding to record the the church's music and distribute on cassettes, right? What does it mean that this can be accessible Um, in a space where you might not be in a mode to pray or to worship. Um, And I think that that, you know, it both points to the way that they understand the power, the efficacious religious power of the songs themselves, um, and the impact that they can have on a person who has been sort of properly entrained to have a bodily response to those kinds of sounds. Um, the I mean I think the other the one that was most um uh controversial while I was in the field um was about whether or not they should have a, a, a sort of closed caption screen that would put the words of the hymns at the front of the church, rather than um, requiring everybody to have a hymn book, and um, at that time the the elder the the leaders of the church were strongly against the the closed captioning system in in favor of. I mean, they saw it as promoting literacy. If everybody has their hymnal, then they can read the hymns, and then they can actually study them on their own as you know the 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 words of the hymns themselves um like at home um i will say now that they do have the the closed caption televisions that broadcast the hymns and in fact i mean they're constantly evolving their use of technology so you can actually watch and this is in part because of the the pandemic um there's they live stream their worship services every sunday on youtube so i can go up on youtube and uh, you know, anybody can go and uh, watch the worship services from the huh. Ionio Church. Right. And so it's, it is a constant process of transformation, uh, uh, you know, incorporation of new technologies. Um, it has to be done right. I think that's the, for me, that's the sort of ethnographic observation is that you do it in the right way and then um, it, it can accomplish the intended ends. Um, I, it would have been, it, it would be interesting. To know about the deliberations that went into deciding to live stream the services, but I would guess it had a lot to do with wanting to protect the the members of the church at the same time as um, making available uh, co- collective worship. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. Um, another theme that arises in several chapters of the book is that there's sort of both an embrace and kind of emphasis on how certain aspects of the church kind of reflect Yoruba culture. Um, but then there's also an effort at the same time to make clear that the church is entirely Christian. Um, and members even kind of criticize other churches for allowing indigenous religious beliefs to sort of creep in. So what Yoruba cultural values and sort of practices, you know, does the church highlight and then where does it sort of draw a boundary in order to distinguish itself from other churches in Lagos?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is a, this is a really great question. It's, it's, um, it's super complicated. And again, this is something that you have to really turn to, right. This isn't a right or wrong answer. It's an ethnographic, it's an answer that's developed ethnographically and and by different kinds of actors for different purposes. So um, most church members would say, we are a Yoruba church because if, and I would say, why are you, why do you think you're a Yoruba church? It would be about the importance of hierarchical relationships based on um, age. So this is where generation becomes this really important theme, right? That you honor your elders, um, that, uh, junior people know their position in relationship to elders, but that also elders know the obligations that they have towards those who come after them to care for, to help, to to um, educate, to nurture, all of that stuff. Um, and so for most, I mean, almost every church member I asked, if I said, what what makes this church a about church? That would be the answer. Um, I mean, the other big part of it for most Of the church members I talked to would be about language, language and other kinds of expressive forms. Um, So I would talk to people who had left the church to join um, neo Pentecostal denominations. um, And often they would express regret that, oh, you know, I like my new church but I really miss praying in Yoruba or I can't pray as well in English as I can in Yoruba or the songs in this church are just so sweet because they know how to bring together the drums and the instruments and the voice so well. And I think that that's another site where the Yoruba-ness of Christianity becomes developed um, within the church. Um, And then, uh, I mean, I would say – Right I mean I think for me religion isn't right religion is what people do and if Yoruba people are saying they're doing Christianity that is both Christian and Yoruba um I think I have to take them seriously and try to understand what what it is that they see about that right so it would be the the sort of importance of particular kinds of 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 social relationships that get embedded in it. Um, the the use of these cultural forms. Um and then the I mean, the other uh, the, the reason why I'm going back to this kind of foundational understanding of this relationship is because the accusations about other churches not being properly Christian often points to um practices that could be understood as the same right so this is really about the the shifting nature of understanding insiders and outsiders within a particular community
0: yeah well i guess i mean where do they draw the line for example like what what would they sort of yeah view as like allowing like indigenous religion to kind of creep in
1: um so it would be so specifically naming certain kinds of certain deities um Right. So, so they're using a lot of very um, culturally deep uh, names to refer to the Christian God, but there's certain, like if it comes close to the way that certain Orisha are talked about, that becomes too close. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of the instances I talk about in the book is the, the lead drummer for the choir. He was like, well, look, I am a Christian and I'm Yoruba and I can play this drum. It's the Bata drum. Um, and it's the drum that's usually played um, for shango, the Arisha shango. Um, but when I play it, I'm not drawing shango down. I'm not like you know allowing people to be possessed by shango. I, it's the Holy Spirit, and he laid a track, a bata track for one of the um, choir's recordings, and he said, "Yeah, they didn't. They decided that they couldn't use it. That it was too potentially dangerous." Oh, yeah. So it's. You know, I think that that's, but the in popular culture, there's all kinds of, of, you know, sort of insinuations that white garment churches aren't are sort of engaging in a little bit of fetishism, quote unquote fetishism or juju or whatever, um, when they use candles or soap or certain kinds of objects as the focus of their prayer, that then. Um, uh, is understood as not being about this this kind of transparent direct relationship to god um, but what's interesting is you know you like those are certainly practices that are widely done in Dara churches cherubim and seraphim churches but it, they're also done in pentecostal churches so really that's about who is making the accusation and for what purpose that's a political claim mm-hmm. yeah
0: Another theme which we've sort of already, you know, addressed a little bit, right, is this idea of, you know, increased competition um, with Pentecostal churches. (laughs) Um, One sort of question related to that that I had while reading the book was that, you know, while it didn't seem kind of identical to sort of the typical prosperity gospel of many of the mega Pentecostal churches in Nigeria, There was clearly a message in the church that prayer, hard work, and sort of bodily discipline would lead to material success on earth. Um, And in in your final chapter, you note that sort of the most senior and revered group within the church um, are in part revered for their seniority, but also, you know, for their success in life. So sort of how do members maybe see this as different than the uh, Pentecostal prosperity gospel?
1: So I think, um, I mean, I think that they would say, I think they have said that it's not, we've been doing this the whole time. I see. Yeah. And that this is just uh, like the attraction for, um, like this is about competition and this is about the lure of the foreign or the new or the outside. Um, whereas if we really embrace our sort of, our yoruban the Yorubanis that's embedded in Cherubim and Seraphim Christianity, um, then you're you're doing the same thing. I, so that's one of like that's that's one of their defensive reactions to that. I mean, I would say also though it's co- it's complicated and contradictory because at the same time they want to be clear that they're really. Christian, and therefore everybody, not just Yoruba folks. Um, and so th- that's why there's an English chapel within the compound. Um, but I don't think that that is as convincing to many members of the church, especially to church leadership, as the argument that we've been doing this all along, but we're better because we're doing it in this Yoruba way as opposed to this foreign way. Um, and it's actually like, to be Yoruba, to, to practice religion, to practice Christianity in this Yoruba way is actually ethically better um, because Neo-Pentecostals are appealing to this these like foreign or outside influences.
0: Um, and then on this note, kind of, you know, in what ways does the structure of the church kind of provide material support for members? And then kind of what is the sort of the limits to this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big, I mean, this is what Pentecostal churches many of the Pentecostal churches in Nigeria are doing. And this church is no exception of, you know, the state has really withdrawn from uh, providing social needs, you know, the social needs of the community. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a a, a healthcare um, clinic in the church compound. They do regular fundraising to give alms to needy, um, to the needy um, clothing drives. Um they often will negotiate conflicts between people, between church members and outsiders, um, because to go to sort of, you know, the the police or other legal authority is often lengthy and involves a great deal of bribes and stuff. And so, I mean, I think that's one of the things that the church certainly does. And it's organized in a way within, internally, in a way to make sure that you're if you're a member of the church, you're very aware of your connections to others. Um, And so I talk a bit about in the book about this egg bay, this um, system of, of, uh, they're kind of like clubs or, 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 yeah, they're just groupings. Um, They're organized according, mostly according to spiritual directive. There's some Based on age, and there's some based on gender. Well, they're actually all gendered. I should say, sorry about that. They're all gendered. Some of them are mixed gender, but very few of them. Um, but once you once you join the church, after a while, you join one of the bands, the clubs, um, and then you have this network of obligations. People who will care for you, and who you are obligated to care for, um, so that if you have a problem, you can turn to. There's all kinds of um uh you know sort of microcredit loaning groups organized within the church. Um, but it can also lead to situations of abuse, right? Where you um uh, you become obligated in a way that ex- extends beyond what you're capable of. Um and one of the things I ask at the end of the book, right, is how realistic. Is this like is this just as much productive of inequality as it is of equality? Like the ideal of equality that's enshrined in, in like that these practices are trying to enshrine, um, because it is about sort of wealth flowing up, which then is recirculated down. But given changing economic and political considerations in Nigeria, how much is that actually possible? So.
0: Good. Yeah, I have uh, one last question, kind of uh, regarding uh, Pentecostalism. Um, you, you sort of note in the epilogue that you see your research as a, you know, corrective um, to the Pentecostal prejudice in studies of Christianity in Africa in the last two decades. So, sort of, you know, what is this Pentecostal prejudice, and kind of, how is your book um, in conversation with it?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, this is, I guess, maybe me being a little um, defensive or or even snarky myself, but I think I, I mean, to be clear, I think it's a corrective to the the overwhelming attention that primarily white Africanists paid to the the sort of Pentecostal boom that happened starting in the the nineteen nineties through the current moment um, and the way that, that that I mean that is a profound shift in religiosity in West Africa mm-hmm. certainly um, but it's it, it it I feel like the way that it was written about in a lot of 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 um, sort of anthropology and historical writings uh was very it, it was as though that was all that mattered i mean i would go to conferences and people and say what i was writing about or i'd be on panels and people would say oh those churches still exist and i was like yeah there's like 10,000 people who attend this this one church in lagos every sunday um you know and so i think that it, for me, this was a pushback against that to say, yeah, let's pay attention to the, the new, but let's then understand how it's impacting the old or what is causing the old or, or what's still there to happen underneath it. So, um, and I feel like part of what I was pointing to there too, is the way that those scholars, um, who, in their <laughs> who who, in their need to make a sort of strong case for why what they're studying is important, um, actually reproduce the ideology of the community that they're studying as opposed to really looking at it. Like, what does it mean when Pentecostals say, no, we are the ones that matter as opposed to just scholars reproducing that kind of of discourse. So huh.
0: that's yeah. interesting. Right. And now that you're speaking, I'm just sort of thinking like I haven't seen very much scholarship lately about Catholicism in Nigeria, even though I feel like I've been invited to Catholic services when I've been in Nigeria as much as any other.
1: Yeah, I would say that Nigeria is one of the centers of global Catholicism. And, you know, so I so I think that some of it was my defensiveness as, as being portrayed as like studying this like niche that doesn't really matter anymore when of course it matters and i do think it is it has to do with sort of more well i'm you know it has to do with white africanist um interests and proclivities um i will say that most nigerian scholars i meet are like oh my gosh you study what that's so amazing that's so important um and and i and i appreciate that because i do think it is this very important um religious cultural and social phenomenon for um, for Nigeria and for the Yoruba in particular.
0: <laughs> and great. So now that we've sort of gone throughout kind of most of the book, although certainly there, there's more in there that we you know, haven't had a chance to get into. But yeah. I, I'm wondering if you can kind of speak a bit to the process of sort of turning all of your research um, into a monograph. Um, you know, was it clear kind of what would become a chapter or were there sort of some chapters that maybe you started writing that kind of never made it into the book or? (laughs)
1: this this question is, I mean, this is a hard one. Um, it took me a long time to write this book. Um, and, you know, some of it has to do with the obligations of teaching and being, um, you know, a, a professor, um, and some of it had to do with me trying to figure out um, how I what I wanted to say. So the the original the the way that this book or this project was originally framed was that I was supposed to do um, about a year of field research in Nigeria, and then I was going to do a year of field research in churches here in the U.S. And I was going to look at that kind of this neo diasporic um, connection and. That quickly, I mean, some of it was I got enough research funding to stay in Nigeria for another year, and some of it was, oh my gosh, I need like there's so much here that I need to understand first. So um, quickly, the the stuff about the the cherubim and Seraphim churches in the U.S. kind of dropped out. But I do have an article that I published about that in the Journal of Religion in Africa. Um, but I think for me well i <laughs> while i was writing this book um i was really interested in ritual um and framing it in terms of ritual and what you know how music is this really key part of ritual and i think in the writing that sort of gradually was transformed it's still there because just dis- you know distinct chapters focus on particular rituals um but what the last the last two chapters I wrote well the last chapter I wrote I think is the one that I'm actually most I think is one of the best chapters in the book which is the 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 one that contains the stories of the different church members it's it's you know the one where I talk about the the play um and the songs that are in the play but then I contrast it with the different stories of the church members um and I think that that that's how I I realized that it it you know, I needed to have people. I needed to have more people and more stories like that in the in the text. Uh,
0: well, Dr. Brennan, we've taken up, I think, enough of your time. Um, but before we end, I would like to sort of ask one more question. And that's kind of what you're working on currently, which you've already sort of hinted at. But perhaps you can kind of expand upon.
1: Yeah. So I have um, two, I have too many projects. No, but I have two projects in particular that are emerging out of this or connected to this research, the first comes directly out of it, which is I'm right now. What I'm trying to do is finish up a manuscript on Yoruba gospel music um, that's looking at commercially recorded and distributed Christian music um, by Yoruba Christian artists. Um, that's not just you know I'm not what I'm interested in this for for this book is not about music in the context of church worship itself, but about the sort of system of recording and distribution and, um, celebrity that is associated with it. So that, that's the book that I'm, I'm on sabbatical right now. So I'm trying to finish writing that manuscript. Um, and it features, uh, sort of case studies of specific Yoruba gospel musicians like Topa Alabi or, um, Yinka Yefele, um, and thinking about how, thinking further, expanding the arguments about media, technology, um, circulation, and celebrity, um, the the way that they're impacted by and impacting on religiosity and religious piety. Um, The other project uh, that I've, I've been thinking about for a long time and I've just started doing the research for it is a project that's about listening to religion in Lagos um, that's not focused on music explicitly but it's about sound and the role that sound plays in urban experience and the way that religious sounds impact um, people's experience of the city but also people's religiosity um, and so that's I, I I think I mean I see that as a very big long-term uh, multi-stage project um, but it, it you know it'll involve a variety of field recordings of places in Lagos where religion is heard or perhaps not heard um, in, in an attempt to understand. Uh, you know, I mean, Lagos, uh, Lagos is fascinating to me, so I can come up with lots of different ways of, of understanding, thinking about, researching, writing about Lagos.
0: All right. Well, both of those um, sound really interesting. And I look forward to yeah, reading the, the next book. Um, so yeah, thanks so much for doing
1: this interview. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Thanks for your great questions. And thanks for reading my book.